Hello, and welcome back to Hack Rack. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today one of our fabulous neuroanesthesia faculty members, Dr. Kara Esser, who is a clinical instructor of neuroanesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins. And we are going to talk about a really important topic in neuroanesthesiology, which is kind of an overview of neuromuscular disorders and how they impact your anesthetic and what you want to think about for patients who may have these disorders. So I am excited, and Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jed. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about some neuromuscular disorders. Awesome. I think these are going to be great and really helpful for folks out there. So because it's your first time on the show, um, why don't you just say a few words about you? How'd you kind of get where you are here at Hopkins and um, what got you interested in neuroanesthesia? Sure. Um, So I'm originally from Erie, Pennsylvania, and then ended up at Rutgers in New Jersey for my residency for anesthesiology. And then um, ever since CA one year, I really enjoyed working with different um, neuro cases. Specifically, I saw an aneurysm case that just kind of blew my mind. And I love that there's all this different physiology that you have to take into account with neuroanesthesia. And I really think it's kind of an underrated um, differential of uh, anesthesia. Yeah, that's great. And I know our residents really enjoy working with you and working with neuroanesthesia here, which we do a lot of. So this is, I think, a really important topic. And what I think we can do is go through a variety of different disease processes that our patients may have and how they play out in general, what you think residents or any practitioner needs to know, mm-hmm. and then how it might impact their anesthetic. So let's start with muscular dystrophy and congenital myopathy. What do people need to know about that? All right. So muscular dystrophy and congenital myopathy, it's characterized by skeletal muscle weakness um, due to muscle fiber necrosis and degeneration. Uh, They can have cardiac and smooth muscle of the GI tract that can also be affected. The pathology involves insufficient or abnormal proteins that form the cytoskeleton of the muscle membrane. And then pre-op meds like opioids and benzodiazepines should be avoided to prevent increased aspiration risk for these patients. And then inhalational anesthetics have also been associated with rhabdomyolysis and hyperkalemia, so those are often avoided as well. Now um, I'll talk about some subsets of muscular dystrophy. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is probably what we um, commonly encounter, there is an absence of dystrophin, which is a large protein that plays a role in stabilization of the muscle membrane in signaling between cytoskeleton and extracellular matrix. So eventual development of progressive weakness and contractures in these patients, which leads to kyphoscoliosis and then ultimately respiratory issues. It's an X-linked recessive disorder, and a lot of these patients have loss of ambulation by 12 years of age. They'll have elevated CK levels in their labs. Um, Cardiorespiratory complications cause most of mortality that occurs before the fourth decade. And then respiratory muscle degeneration interferes with their effective cough reflex, causing retention of secretions and then frequent pulmonary infections. These patients will need to have serial echo cardiograms to reveal any progressive left ventricular cavity expansion, which can occur, and then they'll have impaired systolic and diastolic dysfunction. So that's something else that needs to be taken into consideration um, when we're administering anesthesia to these patients. So they'll usually have a cardiac evaluation every two years after their diagnosis and then every year after the age of 10 years. So this would be, these patients, you would clearly want to make sure they had had a cardiac. Well, this isn't the patient who, if they can go up a flight of steps, you say no no cardiac workup needed. They definitely, it sounds like at least within the past two years need to have had at least an echo and a workup. Yes, correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when people think of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, 
they often kind of, I think, think along with it of Becker's muscular dystrophy. How does that differ? What, mm-hmm. what do you think people need to know about that? So Becker muscular dystrophy is, is similar, but it's just a reduction in the normal amounts of dystrophin. So not just complete absence like it, it is with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, so they'll have a similar presentation, but usually they present later in life. So maybe like adolescence and older when they start having the weakness. And then so it's just less progressive. And then their cardiac evaluation will be every five years if they're asymptomatic. If they're symptomatic, then it, it's usually every two years. Okay. And then a maybe less well-known one, but Embry-Dreyfus muscular mm-hmm. dystrophy. What is that all about? Yeah. So Embry-Dreyfus muscular dystrophy is mutations in two proteins with different inheritance patterns. So the X-linked form results from a mutation in the nuclear membrane protein emerin, and then the autosomal dominant form as a result of mutation in laminin A and C. So this, the patients can present with contractures of the ankles, elbows, and neck, which can make um, placing lines difficult as well as intubation. And cardiomyopathy and cardiac conduction abnormalities can present by the age of 30. So those will also need a cardiac workup. Okay. So they need the cardiac workup. You also have to think about airway issues, maybe even more so because of the potential contractures. Yes. Is it the kind of thing where like you'll know it if they've got it, you can see it, they can't extend their neck. So you either, you know, you can see it or is it possible that they would be a more difficult than anticipated airway once you've got in there? It might be actually a more... um, unanticipated air, a difficult airway before getting in there. So, so you want to be aware of Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. What about congenital muscular dystrophy and myopathy? So that uh, is onset of hypotonia during infancy. So it's much more progressive and early on. These patients can have developmental delay, feeding difficulties, and respiratory dysfunction. So um, these one thing to be considered about is these can be susceptible to malignant hyperthermia. Uh, they also require cardiac surveillance, so you would want to get an echocardiogram and cardiac MRI early on in these patients. There are also increased risks for rhabdomyolysis and severe hyperkalemia, secondary to use of succinylcholine or impossibly inhaled anesthetics. Uh, they're sensitive to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, and neuromuscular function should be closely monitored if you do um, utilize non-depolarizing muscle relaxants in these patients. So they may require post-op ventilation. Okay, fabulous. And I know I recently talked about this, I think, with Dr. Isaac when we were going over some of the um, ABA keywords. But I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the congenital muscular dystrophy and myopathy is one that may have the susceptibility to malignant hyperthermia, but despite the fact that we used to think all of these Beckers and Duchenne's mm-hmm. did have some connection, it, I think we don't. We just think that maybe this one congenital muscular dystrophy and myopathy may, but the rest of these do not. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I know we used to think that a lot of them had the susceptibility to um, malignant hyperthermia, but unfortunately, it's it's just the congenital one that they believe there may be some susceptibility to it. Great. All right. How about myotonic dystrophy? Okay, so myotonic dystrophy is caused by dysfunction of ion channels in the muscle membrane. So myotonia is delayed relaxation of skeletal muscle after voluntary contraction. And then following release, you get calcium that does not efficiently return to the sarcoplasmic reticulum and remains available for sustained muscle contraction. So preoperatively with these patients, you want to get pulmonary function tests um, because they might not have the best uh, pulmonary status. The preop eval should also include an EKG and an echocardiogram cardiogram. And if any conduction abnormality is seen on EKG, they should have a cardiac consultation prior to having surgery. Uh, So their cardiac conduction delays um, are common and they can lead to a third degree AV block. And then 
Otherwise, they're often sensitive to even small amounts of opioids, sedatives, and inhalation intravenous anesthetic agents, which could lead to cardiac and uh, pulmonary compromise. And then neostigmine and um, physiostigmine can aggravate myotonia in these patients, so they're often avoided. Okay. And are there different types of myotonic dystrophy? Yes. So there's type 1 and type 2. So type 1 is uh, muscle weakness that begins distally and progresses proximally with eventual muscle wasting. These patients will have a restrictive pattern on pulmonary function tests, mild arterial hypoxemia, and diminished ventilatory response to hypoxia and hypercapnia. Um, they can have AB conduction delay, atrial tachydysrhythmias. Uh, they can also have um, be prone to aspiration of gastric contents because of their gastric atony, intestinal hypomotility, and pharyngeal muscle dysfunction. And then other features for these for type one can have cataracts, thyroid dysfunction, adrenal insufficiency, and gonadal atrophy. With type 2, it's a milder course than that of with type 1. You can get AV conduction delay. They can have muscle strength variations, hypertrophy of calf muscles, exacerbations during pregnancy, but usually a normal life expectancy. Succinylcholine should be avoided due to exaggerated contracture. Often the best to avoid muscle relaxants when possible or use short-acting non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. Uh, but no specific anesthetic technique is shown to be superior for these uh, types of patients. Okay. So let's move on to what I think are some of the more um, creatively named uh, disorders, but I, I always remember these from like step one studying. Mm -hmm. And I should say, you know, all these things, especially for folks studying for the basic exam, yeah. this stuff is totally fair game. I could see it coming up on the advanced exam too, for sure. But I think a lot of the um, disorders, they like to test your knowledge of this stuff. They might give you the description of a patient that has one of these and ask you what they have. So I think knowing this stuff can really help. Um, so let's talk about hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. I love that name. What is that all about? Yeah, speaking from experience, I do remember um, on my advanced exam, which was not that long ago, that they had one of these um, on there. So, so hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, uh, sodium ion channel mutation that causes prolonged muscle membrane depolarization and flaccid paralysis. So episodes of weakness are due to a loss of muscle fiber excitability, secondary to partial depolarization of the resting potential. The partial depolarization prevents generation of action potentials. So the attacks can be provoked by potassium loading, rest after exercise, and cold. So respiratory muscles are generally spared. And then um, consumption of carbohydrate meals, administration of thiazide, and carbonic anhydrase diuretics may prevent attacks. And then succinylcholine is contraindicated in these patients, obviously, because you can increase potassium. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So mm -hmm. now what about its kind of opposite, hypokalemic periodic paralysis? So this is interesting. So hypokalemic, so hyperkalemic with sodium ion channels, and then hypokalemic is mutation in calcium or sodium channels, which can develop flaccid paralytic attacks after carbohydrate loading and rest after exercise as well. These patients will have chronic muscle weakness. Um, metabolic alkalosis can also worsen this 
uh, disorder. And weakness primarily includes the limbs and trunk with diaphragm sparing. So again, not uh, any respiratory weakness, which is good. But um, prevention includes avoiding neuromuscular blockade, avoid excessive hyperventilation, warm the patient, provide adequate hydration, avoid glucose infusions, do not give diuretics, and closely monitor the EKG for any signs of hyperkalemia. And then hypothermia, not hyperthermia, is a trigger for hypokalemia and, and paralysis. Okay, interesting. Now, I would imagine that even though it may spare the diaphragm, it probably doesn't spare the various muscles that protect the airway. So even mm -hmm. if they can breathe, they may not be able to protect your airway. Correct. Okay, so mm -hmm. really important to try to avoid these uh, attacks if possible. All right, what about one people probably know better, which is Guillain-Barre? What do we know mm -hmm. about that? So Guillain-Barre is an inflammatory neuropathy, autoimmune disease. Um, infectious agent produces a substance that causes an immune reaction. Autoantibodies develop that attack the host. And so this is uh, goes against gangliosides in the peripheral nerves. And these patients will develop a sudden onset of ascending motor paralysis and areflexia. So most commonly, it can occur after respiratory or GI infections. So infections with Campylobacter jejuni, Haemophilus influenza, mucoplasma pneumonia, EBV, and CMV. Onset of skeletal muscle weakness or paralysis of the legs, it ends up progressing cephalad to include muscles of the trunk and arms with maximal weakness during uh, developing two to, two to four weeks after the onset. So three to five percent of individuals develop chronic recurrent neuropathy. So succinylcholine should be avoided because of danger of hyperkalemia. It can have very labile autonomic system which can complicate our anesthetic management. So you can get exaggerated hypotension and or hypertensive responses. And regional techniques in patients with pre-existing neurological dysfunction should be carefully considered. Okay. How about multiple sclerosis? I feel like this is one that you definitely learn about in med school, and it's. I always thought it was a little confusing, probably because there's so many different forms of it, right? But what do we need to know for anesthesia? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks. This is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. All right, and we're back with Dr. Esser. So multiple sclerosis involves an inflammation, demyelinating, immune dysregulating uh, of cell repair in the, in the central nervous system. So <clears throat> antigen-presenting dendritic cell crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it converts some T cells into inflammatory cells, and these T cells include macrophages that produce cytokines and oxygen radicals that cause demyelination and axonal decay in these patients. So... Brainstem involvement can produce nystagmus, diplopia, ataxia, autonomic dysfunction, and alterations in ventilation that can lead to respiratory failure. So we really need to consider in these patients that they might not have the best uh, respiratory function at baseline. Legs are affected more than arms. They can have bowel retention and urinary incontinence. Clinical criteria for diagnosis, which usually is age of onset between 10 to 50 years. You can have a CNS white matter disease, two or more attacks separated by a month or more, and involvement of two or more anatomic areas. On laboratories, you can have elevated IgG and albumin in the CSF. MRI is a sensitive diagnostic tool showing demyelinated plaques in the CNS. There may be increased risk of hyperkalemia with succinylcholine. And they can have increased or decreased sensitivity to non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, which makes it very complicating to know if, if there's going to be any issues with the patient. And increases in body temperature can cause an exacerbation of multiple sclerosis, and elective surgery should be avoided during relapses. And ultimately, spinal anesthesia has been associated with exacerbation of the disease. However, peripheral nerve blocks and epidurals seem to have no adverse effect on the disease. Uh, Pre-op consent should state the risk of exacerbation occurring, and then the treatment for this uh, disease ultimately includes corticosteroids, interferon B, azathioprine, and low-dose methotrexate. Great. So it seems like a couple of important things. One is these patients may be on steroids, and so you'd want to know the dose. And if it's a high enough dose, you may need to give them a stress dose. Mm-hmm. Also, as you mentioned, spinal. Sounds like you wouldn't want to do a spinal. Epidural is interesting, right? Because it sounds like epidurals themselves may not have an effect, but I wonder if you wet tap yeah. them, right, mm-hmm. then you may be in trouble. So I would bet, I can't, I don't know, but I wonder if our regional team stays away. Do you know if they do epidurals in these patients? Um, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I know at my old institution, uh, having a couple of multiple sclerosis patients um, on the OB floor, we did end up doing an epidural, but obviously it's you have to weigh the risk and benefits, and the patient um, really wanted the epidural, and we just had to be very careful with placement. Great. And as always, I think communication and and appropriate consent is always super important. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's move on to Alzheimer's disease. Obviously, something everyone is very familiar with, Mm -hmm. either personally or in their family or just from having patients who've had it. What do we need to know for uh, our practice about Alzheimer's? So Alzheimer's, just a quick background, involves amyloid B protein deposition of amyloid plaques, neurofibrillary tangles, and neuronal apoptosis. Changes can cause loss of cholinergic activity and loss of glutamatergic uh, neurons. 
Uh, treatment includes acetylcholinesterase inhibitors like donepazil, rivastigmine, and uh, NMDA inhibitors like mimantine. So the cholinesterase inhibitors improve patients' ability to perform daily living activities and may improve cognition. So the preoperative drug list should be reviewed because of possible interactions with our anesthetics. And then patients that are receiving cholinesterase inhibitors may have prolonged response to succinylcholine. So that's something else to keep in mind. Um, animal studies have shown that general anesthetic agents are associated with neuronal injury and cell death, but current studies don't support avoiding needed surgery in patients that have Alzheimer's disease. Great. And then I know the biggest risk factor for post-operative cognitive decline and post-operative delirium is preoperative cognitive impairment. And mm-hmm. so obviously patients with Alzheimer's going into surgery are going to be really high risk for having worse delirium or even decline after surgery, right? Yes, Definitely. All right. So we would have to make sure they're aware. And, you know, for an emergent or urgent surgery, that probably wouldn't change anything, but still should be communicated. And for an elective surgery, it may be the kind of thing that patients might decide not to have the surgery. Mm -hmm. All right. What about Parkinson's disease? Okay. Parkinson's disease. So we definitely see this a lot, um, especially when we have um, deep brain stimulation cases that we're doing. So Parkinson's disease, degenerative CNS disease caused by loss of dopaminergic cells in the basal ganglia. Uh, There's presence of Lewy bodies in the neurons of substantia nigra. Levodopa is used in combination with drugs such as carbidopa, which is a peripheral decarboxylase inhibitor, and enticapone, which is a catechol-O-methyltransferase inhibitor. These help prevent adverse peripheral effects of dopamine. So with our anesthetic management, the half-life of levodopa is very short, and interruption of the therapy for more than 6 to 12 hours can result in severe skeletal muscle rigidity that interferes with ventilation. So it's definitely important to make sure the patients are continuing their levodopa. Also, those on long-term levodopa therapy can have either marked hypertension or hypotension with induction of anesthesia, so something to keep in mind. Patients being treated with dopamine agonists may be at increased risk for neurologic malignant syndrome, and then response to neuromuscular blockers is generally normal. All right, interesting. And then, you know, there's always, I feel like, questions that ask about patients who may be on these dopaminergic medications and then using anti-dopaminergic medications, right? A lot of our anti-emetics are Mm -hmm. anti-dopamine. Anything we need to think about there in terms of whether or not to use things like, you know, Reglan or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so normally we would avoid giving those uh, medications to these patients and opt for a different medication that doesn't uh, affect the dopamine. Yeah, so I think you can use Zofran. Zofran. Certainly steroids, Mm -hmm. but um, but staying away from the dopaminergics. All right. How about Huntington's disease? All right. Huntington's disease, definitely um, much rarer that we don't commonly see, is autosomal dominant progressive neurodegeneration. It's a trinucleotide repeat disorder, which there's an increase in cytosine, adenine, and guanine sequences on chromosome 4. And so they have a mutant Huntington protein. Neurons from these patients show abnormal inclusion bodies containing mutant Huntington and polyglutamine. So these patients will develop atrophy of the caudate, putamen, and thalamus with uh, cortical thinning. So these patients will develop choreoform movements, depression, and dementia, which is um, very specific for Huntington disease. And then they can experience delayed emergence, increased likelihood of respiratory complications with anesthesia, and this should be anticipated after surgery. Uh, they also have decreased plasma cholinesterase activity, which may prolong their response to succinylcholine if used. Great. And as you said, we see this less, I think, both because it's rare and also because these patients don't live that long, right? Right. At least if it's severe. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly we could. Um, 
And I would imagine that some of this, uh, including the prolonged response to succinylcholine, could precede a lot of the symptoms because they can additionally have the disease and it's developing before maybe it's kind of full blown. So knowing a family history of this could be important. Yeah, so definitely with your um, preoperative evaluation, asking about any family history of any disorders would be beneficial. Great. How about ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease? Sure. So amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, degenerative disease of motor neurons, upper and lower cortical spinal tracts, glutamate excitotoxicity and or oxidative stress may be important components of this disease. You have degeneration and destruction of the neuromuscular junction, and then 50% of patients die within 30 months of onset of symptoms. So initial symptoms are asymmetric limb weakness, dysarthria, dysphagia, um, which can result in vulvar atrophy. So these patients are definitely at risk for post-op ventilation. Um, the only drug that's approved for the treatment of ALS is Ruluzol, which is a glutamate release inhibitor. These patients may be sensitive to non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, and they can have a hyperkalemic response with the use of succinylcholine due to extrajunctional acetylcholine receptors. Spinal anesthesia is usually avoided, so kind of like multiple sclerosis, but an epidural is okay. Yeah, and you know, I think a really important, this is a theme we keep talking about, but a really important piece with these patients is that discussion because I've had a variety of ALS patients coming in, for example, for a feeding tube in, in IR who are very clear they do not want to be intubated under mm-hmm. any circumstances. Mm-hmm. They know if they get intubated, it's highly unlikely they will get extubated mm-hmm. and they don't want that. So they do not want to reverse their DNI for the surgery. They mm-hmm. do not, if, if it ends up in a situation, and this is not everybody, right? So you have to mm-hmm. talk to them. But I've had patients who say, if you have to intubate me to save my life, do not do it, right? They do not want that. Mm-hmm. They know that they're going to die from this disease and they do not want to have a breathing tube. Um, now there are other patients obviously who end up on a ventilator and live on a ventilator. And so that's a very, they get trached and that's a very Mm -hmm. different patient, but you have to talk to these patients and you can't assume, and we've made a big deal of this in our hospital recently, that you should not assume that a a DNR or DNI order gets reversed for a procedure automatically. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I've also had patients that are very adamant about not having a breathing tube placed. Yeah. And these patients often, I mean, again, this is not major surgery, but to have the, the G tube done in IR you know, they may be on their home BiPAP and they bring that in and you can be creative, you know, especially work with your IR docs. We've done it where, you know, they can't, we have a patient who can't lay down without their BiPAP. And so what we do is we sit them up with their BiPAP. They can take it off while they're sitting briefly. And then the IR uh, physician can put a, a very thin wire down through the nose. And then you put the BiPAP back on over that wire. Then they can lay down fluoro, find out if they got the wire where it needs to go, sit them back up and do some adjustments. So if you're creative and if your IR, uh, you know, proceduralists are creative, then you can do these without um, have even with someone who can't really lie down off their BiPAP. Yeah, definitely. All right. This has been great care. We've covered a lot of really important stuff. Anything we didn't cover that you want to mention before we move on? Um, no, I was just going to say other common neuromuscular disorders are uh, myasthenia gravis and myasthenic syndrome, but I know those have been discussed in other ACREC podcasts, but just to mention those are um, things to be aware about with anesthetic concerns as well. Great. Perfect. All right. Well, let's move to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you would recommend that the audience check out? Sure. I listened to a very interesting audiobook recently called The Perfect Marriage. Um, it's definitely a twister and you don't know what's coming at the end. I mean, it's probably a, a published book as well, but I just listened to the audiobook, So definitely something good to check out. 
Love it. Yeah, if it weren't for audiobooks, I would not make it through many, if any, books. So I, I'm a huge audiobook fan as well. And I love that you can actually, if you're willing to get both the Kindle version and the audiobook version, mm-hmm. you can switch back and forth. So even if you just have a few minutes at night to read mm-hmm. the actual book or the Kindle book, then you can switch automatically. It just keeps you up where you are. And I do a lot of books that way. Um, the Perfect Marriage. All right, that sounds awesome. And then um, a great uh, book that I, uh, or series really, that I just um, am starting. I'm about one, one book into the three book trilogy. It was recommended by one of our residents, and she didn't tell me to say her name, so I won't do that, but I'm going to give her a silent shout-out or an anonymous shout-out for recommending this. But she recommended um, a series by R.F. Quang, and I I don't know if I'm saying that author's name right, it's K-U-A-N-G, but the series is called The Poppy Wars. It's a fantasy series that is kind of um, loosely based in the historical uh, time period of the, um, uh, the rape of Nanking in China. Um, and it, it, so it's kind of like a little bit of parallel history, but a fantasy world with magic and things. But it's really well done and interesting. And I think it's three total books and I'm on the second now, but definitely recommend checking that out. All right, Kara, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, You can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter. And we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.